Hey, we right now are in a season of practicing feasting and generosity and really excited to be uh, practicing community in our, our communities outside of uh, Sunday mornings. And uh, we also are right now um, uh, kind of doing some spring outreach, which is great, through the Ronald McDonald House and Meals from the Heart campaign. I actually think if you go into the slides there, we actually have a few pictures. So there was a group yesterday that went out and cooked brunch for the Meals from the Heart. I think it's under slides there and at the beginning. And so thank you to that group that went. We, I think eight or nine of us um, cooked brunch. Oh, there they are. Isn't that a great photo right there? There it is. The aprons and all. And so such a great time. And I think there's a couple there of us in action. So just so thrilled to the people that participated. Now, this coming Saturday, what we're doing is we're actually going back to Ronald McDonald House. And if you want to jump on a team, we are going to be um, doing some baking from 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock this Saturday. Unfortunately, kids can't come, but if you want to come along, uh, speak to Pat Linton or just go to the website and hit um, Spring Outreach on there and... Um, it'll be great. You can sign up and he'll, uh, he'll hook you up with all the details. Sound good? Sound good? If you want to open up your Bibles with me, we are in a series called The New Humanity, and we're just going to start to read in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul says. He says this, verse 1, from Paul, one of King Jesus' apostles, through God's purposes, to the holy ones in Ephesus, who are also loyal believers in King Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus, the King, may he give you grace and peace. Then verse 3, let us bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. He has blessed us in the, in the King with every spirit-inspired blessing in the heavenly realm. He chose us in him before the world was made so as to be holy and, and irreproachable before him in love. He foreordained us for himself, to be adopted through Jesus the King. That's how we wanted it, and that's what gave him delight. Verse 6, so that the glory of his grace, the grace he poured on us in his beloved Son, might receive its due praise. Deep breath, keep going. Verse 7, in the King and through his blood, we have deliverance. That is, our sins have been forgiven through this wealth of his grace, which he has lavished on us. Yes, with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the secret of his purpose, just as he wanted it to be and set it forward in him as a blueprint for when the time was ripe. His plan was to sum up the whole cosmos in the king. Yes, everything in heaven and on earth in him. Verse 11, deep breath. In him, we have received the inheritance. Come on, somebody. We were foreordained to this according to the intention of the one who does all things in accordance with the counsel of his purpose. This was so that we, we who first hoped in the king, might exist for the praise of his glory. In him, you too, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in him you were marked out with the spirit of promise, the Holy One. Verse 14, the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the time when the people who are God's special possession are finally reclaimed and free. This too is for the praise of his glory. Boom. Now, you want to know something crazy? 
Verses 13 to uh, four, sorry, verses three, I'm sorry, to 14 there, the large chunk of what we just read is one sentence in the original language. One, one sentence, 202 words in Greek. It's actually right here. This is the longest sentence in the entire scripture. Now, you and I, probably if you tried to pull this off in an essay, we'd probably get in trouble for this. Any students with with me. This is like the ultimate run-on sentence. And actually, in the English version, uh, especially the NIV, which is the most common version, it takes these, this one sentence, and for us, grammatically, it puts it into eight or nine different sentences for it to make sense for us. Now, the question is why? Why, like, the ramble on? What is going on here? In three words. Ready for them? Paul is stoked. Can we say that word? Is that socially acceptable today? I think so. It's legal. I'm just saying. Anyways. It's church too. I don't know if we should be talking about this, but anyways. Paul is stoked. He is bursting at the seams about the gospel and what it does. And what he's doing right here is a classic piece of Pauline theology. He's retelling the story of Israel, but he's doing it in worship. And if it seems a little over your head, I get it, because this, these verses here, 3 to 14, are charged with imagery. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that was promised of Israel, and because he is the promised Messiah, everything changes. Even for some of us, it gets us out of bed on a sunny Sunday morning in May in 2019. Come on, somebody, you with me? Like, Paul is so brimming over with the hope of Jesus and what the gospel does that he can't even put a period in. He's just going on and on and on about the beauty and the wonder of this God who pours out his love on us. Just a reminder, for all of us that you and I love what we talk about, right? So you and I as humans, it's easy to have like self-disclosures of things that we love, but without fail, you and I are, as humans are people that we begin to know what you love because it brims on the outside of us. And this is what happens with Paul. I remember doing youth ministry for years and without fail, every group and community has people that are a little quiet and introverted. And you're like, that's me. <laughs> it's me too at times. And I remember having these young kids, you know, these junior high kids that wanted nothing to do with anybody in our youth programs. But if you got to them in that one thing, it was all over. You know what I'm talking about? You got to the heart of the one thing that made them tick. It's like Diablo. I remember one kid, he would not talk to me for months. And all of a sudden I realized, and remember the old video game Diablo? Anybody? Nobody here. You should have done, you should have done youth ministry, man. Um, there are things inside of us that come out. Mark Roberts, he puts it like this. He says, Paul here, it's words and images are so grand, stretching our minds to consider the greatness of God, the riches of his grace, and his stunning plan for the cosmos. In these 11 verses, Paul is brimming with the hope of what started in the beginning and what will happen in the end. Now, the book of Ephesians, you can literally divide it in half. It's six chapters in our English Bible. And it's interesting that in the first three chapters of this beautiful letter, there's no commands, zero. 
It's all about God speaking to his people through Paul, telling them who they are in Christ. And then it actually switches to that latter half where it's all this practical outworking stuff that helps the community in what God wants to lead them to. What's crazy here in verses 3 through 14, it's actually, you can look at it like this, it's actually an outline of the letter of Ephesians. It talks about spiritual evil, verse 3, and being adopted by God in verse 5. It talks about grace all throughout the letter in verse 6, and unity, and life in Christ, and the power of the Spirit. And one thing, if you actually read through the letter, is you begin to see that these things begin to develop themselves throughout Paul's writing. One sentence laying the foundation for who God is and who he's called us to be. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? Are you alive? All right, so here's the tension with this. We have 11 verses, and scholars like take so much time to pull out the truths from these. And here we are on a Sunday morning, and most of you are thinking about like what you're gonna do for lunch. Let's be honest, right? Can we be honest? I am, it's all right. We're free here to be open. And so how do we make... How do we make this hit the ground for us as a community? I think one of the best ways to do it is just to pull out a few of the key themes that Paul talks about. One, in these 11 verses, or 12 verses, I guess, 11 times Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. It's all, it's dripping throughout this narrative here of what God has done. And so Paul is obsessed with the idea that Jesus followers, you and I, would understand who we are in the king. The version that I'm reading from is the kingdom version by a guy named N.T. Wright, a scholar. And over and over he uses this phrase, in the king that it's describing our union with Jesus and our participation within his life, our sharing in this new life. Paul is obsessed with us as people sharing in the new life of Christ. You know, often what we do as Christians is we say things, we we use jargon like, I'm going to invite Jesus into my heart. Have you heard this before? Have you heard this? And I get it. There's certain nuance there, I think, that that's not untrue. But it's interesting, when you read the scriptures, you begin to realize that it's probably the opposite, that God is actually, actually inviting us into his life. He's inviting us to be united with him, sharing in his life and his love, drawing us into him. This is what it's all about. If you want to know what Ephesians is about, this is what it is. Us as humans, now the new humanity being brought into Christ, in Christ. Now, to set the next concept up, here's what I want to do. If you can, Sergio, I think it's all set there for you. Um, I want you to watch this little video. You okay with the video this morning? I know it's out of the ordinary, but check this out, okay? So beautiful. Now, I'm a sucker for these, and you've probably seen some of these videos that have gone viral um, where people declare to, like Meredith here in the story, young teenager, that they have now been adopted into this family. Um, I'm a sucker for these. And you know the, the, you know the, uh, the videos online with the military people arriving home and they surprise their families? I'm just a suck. Anybody else with me? Heather's like, why are you crying? You cry at Paw Patrol first. Uh, I'm just an emotional guy. And here I'm sitting watching these. I'll go like through you know, the thumb rolls on Instagram with all these videos. And this is a beautiful picture. 
And I'll actually argue this. For most Protestant Christians, we tend to think that the ultimate picture of salvation is justification, being made right. And that's really the narrative that we've used in the Protestant church for the last 500 years or so. But can I say this? That picture there of what this family did for Meredith, that's actually the primary concept of salvation in the scripture. And it's this word that Paul uses over and over in Ephesians, and it's the word adoption. Adoption is actually the description of God's goal for the whole human race. And this is what Paul is saying. You know, in this run-on sentence, he's talking about humanity now turning and trusting and being adopted into the family of God. Luch Lombardi puts it like this. He says, the gracious, freely giving God targeted no less than the human race as the object of his desire for adoption. And that, my friends, should be a picture for us of what God has done for us as humans. And as Gentiles, as people typically, if you look at the Old Testament, outside the covenant, he has brought us in and he has given everything he can to adopt us and bring us into the family. Is that not good news? This is such beautiful news that changes the course of human history. For us, it draws us into this idea that God is Father. You know, one of the things that was said of Caesar is that he was, the, the, one of the titles he would have is that he was Father of the Empire. And then Christians come along like Paul and say, no, 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 we're going to flip this narrative on its head. We follow the father of all humanity, and he is the one that adopts us into his family. Now, I wanted to kind of skip by this, but here's what I, I assume, because if you're in a Praxis community, typically what happens is discussion happens around the table, which is beautiful, you know, in authentic, real community, typically you're engaging theological issues, and this comes up hands down. Some of you haven't listened to me this morning, for the most part, because you've heard a few words in here that Paul uses, and you have all sorts of questions. And my, my first thought is just to kind of pass by and let it sit, because some of it can kind of be controversial in the theological world, but let me just take a minute and talk about predestination, because anybody hear the word there? And for being foreordained, depending on which version of the Bible you read. And most of us, I think, that are thinking Christians in this room have some questions. What does this mean? Because there are some that believe in a God before the foundation of the world who kind of had his hands over his eyes and selected some he wanted for himself and then others he didn't choose. Anybody heard this before? Anybody? We have to wrestle with, does this, is this what being foreordained or predestined actually um, means? Um, now, there's great, here's the thing, there's great godly people that believe this. They would come from a theology that would believe before we even got a chance, you know, God just kind of blindly chose some for himself and then the rest kind of to eternal hell. Now, that's really good news, I guess, if you won the salvation lottery. <laughs> Anybody with me? Um, but that seems really inconsistent with God's character. There are some wonderful people who step into this story and that's what they believe. And then I'll say this, there's probably some not so wonderful people that have used this over time to exclude those on the outside from the church. But here's what I just want you to think through. When you hear predestined or foreordained, think about Ephesians. Is Paul writing to brother Bob or sister Sally as individuals in this letter? No. 
The problem we get, especially through the Reformation, is theology kind of arise that was very individual, right? So people would look at predestination or being foreordained, and they would look at it in terms of Spencer or Serge or me as an individual before the foundations of the world being predestined or foreordained for God. The problem with that is the Bible is not written to me as an individual, especially here. We've got we to wrestle through this, especially as North Americans, where everything is kind of about us as individuals. I, I said last week, we need to be reminded that the phenomenon of opening up your Bible and reading in the morning is like really new, like since the printing press. The early Christians did not have Bibles that they would read individually. They'd have to get together in community to chew on it and wrestle through it. And so our problem in the West is we think of individuals and Paul is writing groups and talking about groups of people. He says here that God foreordained us. I always say when you read the scriptures, you should think of it as not you, but y'all. Can you say y'all with me, right? I have a friend in Louisiana. She says it a lot. I think it's a great word picture for us. And so one of the things that I have just wrestled through is I don't believe being foreordained or predestined. I don't think Paul means that before the foundation of the world, he chose you as an individual, but then is sending everybody else to hell. It has to do with groups of people. Israel, in the Old Testament, was elected by God out of sheer grace. Remember, Abraham was a Babylonian, like a gnarly dude, really. He chose them, that community out of Abraham's line, to be the vehicle that would carry God's purposes to the world so that the world would know him. Now, what Paul is saying is that the church is now, they are the foreordained ones to be this group that's adopted by the king and to be the vehicle in which the world would know God. Nod your head if you're with me, brothers and sisters. This is about groups of people more than it is about individuals. And so I would push back a little bit, and if you believe that, that's fine, but I push back a little bit and simply thinking, well, God chose some and not others. He chose Israel as this foreordained group to be a blessing to the world, and I know sometimes it's hard to believe in our context, but it's actually now the church in our context that is this community that was foreordained to be the vehicle that would lead, other, lead others through love and light to the king of the universe. And so we need to, I think, pump the brakes a little on this idea that, you know, people have no chance. There's some that would believe in something called double predestination, where there's like no hope outside of God saving them, which is a beautiful story in the sense of God's salvation. But listen, I think we need to be careful to say, well, you know, he chose me, but not you. You with me? Groups of people, the church. If we could just remember every time we read the scriptures that it's to a community of people, that would be great. Nudge your head if you're with me, hanging in there, Sunday in May. The final picture we get from Paul in here is the idea, that's not spelt right, so don't worry about it. It's the word, you know, sometimes the week goes funny, you know, it's all good. Redemption. If you look in verse 7, this word redemption or deliverance is used. So verse 7, let me read it again. In the king and through his blood, we have deliverance, that is, our, or, or redemption, that is, our sins have been forgiven through the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on us. The Greek word here, apolotrosis, was actually a word that would catch your attention. That's the Greek word for redemption. And so when Paul uses this, if you were reading it in the Roman context, you would kind of, it would grab your attention. And the reason is this. In the Roman Empire, it said that 
anywhere between 30 and 40% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And we don't have time to unpack slavery in the Roman context. It wasn't good. Uh, There was uh, obviously an economy around it, and again, we don't have time for a lot of that. But what would happen is slaves would be sold in the open marketplace in something called the agora, which I know many of you guys have heard. And so what you could do is if you were in a position of power, just like we see even in the slave trade today, if you were in a position of power, you could go in the Roman Empire and you could purchase a slave. But also what you could do, and this ha- there's actually records of this in history of Christians doing this in the first couple centuries, you could also go down to the Agora and pay the price for the slave and you could set that slave free. Now, guess what the word for this was? That Greek word, apolutrosis, which we now in turn translate as redemption. There's actually records of this where people, Christians, as soon as the Jesus movement would open up, they would go to the Agora and they would pay the price for that slave's freedom. This is the picture. Guys, this is why I come on a Sunday, Sunday morning. This is why I have given my life to this. Because the picture is not just justification. That's one of the things we get in the Bible. But man, we are adopted, guys, and we are redeemed. There has been a price that has been paid for us. And one of the things that Paul wants to do, he's, it's a very specific metaphor from the Exodus. God's people were delivered, and they were purchased, and they were they were delivered from slavery. They were redeemed from slavery. And now Paul is putting this in light of the new exodus. And now for us, it's about the hope of the world, Jesus, and the forgiveness of sins. So when you read this, I mean, for us, you know, especially if you grew up in flannel board Christianity and church like I did, you kind of just read things and you're familiar with it. The hairs on the back of your neck would stand up when you would hear this word. It was a politically charged word word in the first century. And now Paul is using it for what God has done for us. So we're adopted in Christ and we're redeemed. And notice a few things as we land the plane. Notice, one, that God's plan here of redemption, it's actually cosmic. So he starts in these verses before the beginning of time, but listen to verse 10. His plan was, God's plan was to sum the whole cosmos in the king. Yes, everything in heaven and on earth in him. The redemption of the world is not just you and me. The redemption is of everything, the renewal of all things. You know, so many of us in the West have kind of been caught in this narrative that you just pray a prayer and then hopefully you just kind of get to heaven when you die. And there's part truths in that, but actually the story is the rejoining of what God is doing. He's rejoining heaven and earth. And there's an angst within all of us, I know, because I was at a movie on Friday with a bunch of middle schoolers. We went to see Avengers Endgame. Anybody seen it? There'll be no spoilers, I promise. So I'm sitting in a room with like 150 um, middle schoolers. And I just got thinking, there is a longing in all of us, in each one of us, that the world would be rid of evil. Because when that happened, when evil was rid of in the film, you had a bunch of middle schoolers cheering at the top of their lungs. Yeah, right? Even the guy sounded like that. Yeah! And there's like one kid in the back corner. Yeah, you know, the one that has, you know, becoming a man. Um, middle schoolers. But... 
There's this, think about the films and the, and the shows and the things, the stories we embed ourselves in. They're cosmic in scope, and that's not, there's no mistake with that, because the story that we're caught up in is not just individual sins being forgiven. Paul makes it clear that this plan of redemption is cosmic, that heaven and earth is coming back together, and that longing for the world to be rid of, the evil to be rid of from this world is a good longing within us. This also says to me, if you keep reading, that God's family now is marked by the Holy Spirit. God's family is marked by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, he says, In him you were marked out with the Spirit of promise, the Holy One. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the time when the people who are God's special possession are finally reclaimed and free. In the first century, what you would do is if you had property, slaves, or cattle, what you would do is you would brand them with wax seals. You would, think about it for a second, you would mark your property with wax seals. What's Paul saying? Brothers and sisters, you and I are branded. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are God's people. We are God's property. We are his brothers and sisters under his rule and reign. And so one of the things we need to grapple with is the Spirit does this sealing work on our lives. And then the other thing I want you to notice is just this, and I think this runs through the text over and over. Notice here that Paul's worship, because this is what this is, these verses, this run-on sentence that he's just going and going and going, this worship is connected to the story of God. What Paul is doing here, he's connecting the story of God to worship. The problem we face today, and it's okay because we sing these types of songs too, but often our worship is dominated with, God, I want more of you. I want more of your spirit. Holy Spirit, come. And those are very good things to pray and to sing. And all this is noble stuff, but some of the deepest worship when you read through the scriptures is connected to retelling the story of God, and this is what Paul does in Ephesians 1. He's talking about the amazing, lavish, crazy, upside-down story that has saved us from our sin and ourselves and will renew all of creation. And I think one of the things we need to do is we need to step into our part of our worship being this culmination of understanding the story of God and what God has done. Uh, Mark Roberts, he says this, We will never rightly understand God's story, nor will we ever rightly know its author and principal actor, Jesus, unless we ground our knowledge in the story of the Old Testament. This is what Paul does. He takes all this imagery of God's redemption and he tells it as his act of worship. And so one of the things, brothers and sisters, I think we need to be drawn into is a deep shaping by the, of the scriptures. Oftentimes, here's what I hear. I, oftentimes I hear people say, it's just so hard, and especially the Old Testament, and I get it. So many laws, and it's so complex. It's just, I don't get it, is what I hear a lot of people say. But here's the thing. I think about a year ago, or a year and a half ago, um, many of you guys know I had back problems, and I was on my back for like 10 days. Um, long story, but it was around Christmas time. And so I had to like fill my life with stuff for 10 days. And so, of course, I watched <laughs> six Star Wars movies. Anybody? Over that time. And I watched them with my, and this was the moment in time where I got to reintroduce my, or introduce my boys to Star Wars. 
And I found myself, after watching these movies, putting down a piece of paper and actually highlighting for them and describing the canon of Star Wars to them. So I wrote out the dates, the names of the movies. I talked about the prequels and then the bad ones that weren't really good. And then I talked about, you know, Rogue One. It's kind of part of the story, but it's not really part of the story. And then we get, you know, kind of going to the end. And Spence is very proud because I wasn't even in Star Wars like four or five years ago. And here I am on the table outlining the canon for them. And I wrestled because I hear people talk about Game of Thrones like every day of my freaking life and about who's at the top and who's fighting for this and fighting for that or Harry Potter, you know, which wizard is this and which wizard is that. And it seems so natural for us to talk about complex things from other stories and yet true authentic worship evolves from this idea of being shaped by the scripture. One of the things, I think the deepest form of worship, what it does, is it's shaped by the story of God. The Old Testament is not too complex to learn. If you can learn the wizards from Harry Potter, which is great, you can learn why Paul gives the mother of all sentences to, to give his worship to God. So I would say the deepest form of worship, sometimes we want to come to God and say, God, I want more of you. I think what he wants from us is to continually in our worship proclaim this good story of adoption and redemption. Worship cannot be disconnected from the story of God and it cannot be, and we've talked lots about this, it cannot be disconnected from a relentless commitment to God's family. This is what true worship is. I meet so many people and they're charismatic and it's wonderful and they just want more and more and more and it's like, well, Maybe what we should really be caught up in is what Paul is doing here. We're redeemed, we're in Christ, we're adopted. And so what we're going to do, brothers and sisters, in this moment, we're going to come to the tables, and we're going to worship. And we're going to shape our worship by declaring, as Paul does here, yeah, who we are. And we're going to sing this song together about who God has declared us to be in him. And as we come to the bread and cup, I believe this will be a moment where we recalibrate our lives in the kingdom.